but when companies make those decisions, I just needed to understand because it just didn't make sense. And um, when I, when I did my MBA, everything was answered. It was like a light bulb went off, exploded. Mm -hmm. And I I was like, whoa, I learned how people really make money. I mean, it Mm -hmm. was enlightening. Really, really interesting. Like you say, it is that, that light bulb moment, isn't it? It's the okay, I see, like from a business point of view, this is where this makes sense and this is why this decision was made. And That's right. It all, That's like right. you say, starts to fall into place. It's like you go from being in the jigsaw puzzle to looking down on the jigsaw puzzle almost. Welcome to the Unpolished MBA podcast. On this podcast, we have conversations with tech startup founders and entrepreneurs and traditional corporate MBAs. Many say that startups equal the unpolished MBA because those without the formal business education are scrappy and do many things untraditionally to achieve business success. But anyone who has built a business from an idea can attest to the fact that the experience is another level MBA and there's nothing quite like it. The candid conversation shared here is helpful to both sides of the fence. One is not better than the other, just different. Let's jump in. Hi, I'm your host, Monique Mills, and in my work, I get to have great conversations with a lot of smart and interesting people. Some are tech startup founders and entrepreneurs in various industries, and others are corporate employees. Here I'm sharing a conversation I had with Emma Gaskin, who started her career as a midwife in the UK. And now that she has her MBA, so much has changed. She shares how getting her MBA was somewhat of a safety blanket that she was hoping to use to move into another place of quote unquote safety, management consulting. Well, things didn't work out quite as planned though. Listen in on her story. I'm going to do my fast fire questions here. First one is, are you an entrepreneur or a corporate employee? Entrepreneur. Okay. MBA or no MBA? MBA. MBA. So your MBA um, and your entrepreneur. So tell me what your, what drove you into entrepreneurship? Okay. So I started my career as a midwife which in the UK means looking after pregnant women throughout their pregnancy. We see them between eight and 10 times and then up to six times um, after birth. It's a bit like an OBGYN in the US. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that's where I started. And I worked as a social midwife, a parent education lead, and as a general midwife. So I had my own clinic and uh, set up my own parent education courses and did all of that. Uh, but in the UK in 2018, we had government cuts. So they closed my clinic and they wouldn't give me any funding to expand. But that growth and that innovation that I'd done in the three years that I worked there really gave me the bug for creating and kind of doing my own thing. So I went off, got an MBA and then, yeah, dived straight in, started working for myself. It's, it's scary changing career because I am now a life and business strategist. So I've completely switched. I'm no longer in the, the healthcare field. I, well, I say at all, I run a series of online antenatal courses, 
mm-hmm. but that's as much as I've as much as I do now uh, my main role is as a life and business strategist so from your own experiences you have a, a very rich background and in, in, in a variety of things so I can totally see it so they on the surface they absolutely look different mm-hmm. underneath they're quite similar in quite a lot of ways so mm-hmm. working as a social midwife my role was to help vulnerable women leave their vulnerable situations so that was helping for example women in gangs to leave their gang or women who were drug addicts to get clean and give the best start for them and their new baby that they bring into the world and in a way that's quite similar to yes okay they're not so vulnerable but the people that I help through life strategy and business strategy it's all about creating transformational change and helping them to up level themselves and their business Mm -hmm. so there's there's the common thread there but the reason I went for the shift is because in the UK, the NHS is it's government run mm-hmm. and therefore is under the control of the government. And I burnt out basically in the three years with you know, feel that you're constantly banging your head against a brick wall, trying to make change, trying to help people. And it's, there's no money for this, with no money for that, et cetera, et cetera. So. Wow. But you're right. Um, when you're talking about transformational change, the work that you're doing with people now is still very personal, very personal. So you already have the skills to handle that, which is awesome. Um, So tell me a little bit about ideal clients now. When my clients first come to me, they usually feel quite lost, um, Mm -hmm. emotionally numb and disconnected, quite a lot of them. And that feeling of just not really knowing where you're going or why you're going in the direction you are or so even sometimes that thing of okay how on earth did I end up here you know how has mm-hmm. how has life happened to me like this um what I do working with them uh, through a 12-week one-to-one program which is my signature offer at the moment is we go through a process of self-love and self-acceptance go through a process of grounding so that's tapping into things like quantum physics and the universe and entanglement theory that kind of thing Then we go into clearing. So looking basically like clearing out the cupboards of your past, Mm -hmm. working out why you feel like you do, how you ended up where you are and what's serving you still and what's not serving you. So what can stay and what really needs to go. Wow. You, I mean, this is like a therapy session too. It's yeah. in in a way, in a way it's just Hmm. helping, helping them to get really clear. And then from that point, creating the vision where they want to go based on, their new learnings where they are after doing the process of self-love and grounding and clearing. Mm -hmm. And then the final step is creating what I like to call your soulful life strategy. So that's the kind of step-by-step exactly how to enjoy the journey along the way and reach your goals. And the deliverable is creating a life that you love, a life beyond your wildest dreams. So does your MBA play any part in um, what you do now? Has it helped you in business? Absolutely. Do you know, it was so it was so important to me to go and get an MBA because I felt as a midwife, I didn't have enough of a business background. Mm-hmm. So to run my own business, I didn't really know where to start. And so you talk about being brave and courageous. I'm not sure <laughs> for me <laughs> going to go and get the MBA was my my safety blanket almost. Um, wow. to give me the courage to start to start going out on my own and I use it with I use it with my clients too the, some of the things that I, I learned from mm-hmm. that it all it all feeds in especially with the business side um, as well 
So that's much more lean or leans much more towards the MBA and the learnings from that. There are definitely tools and techniques. So things like your Six Sigma and mm-hmm. the yeah. MBA language as well. That helps in a business sense and talking to businesses about their growth and that kind of thing. It gives you the, the language to be able to do that really effectively. I think the other part of it is that it just it helps in a big way to have that experience. It adds that feather to your cap. Whether or not they'll let you in the room sometimes depends on credentials and credibility as they see it um, to consider um, the conversation or the introduction worthy, which is Unfortunate, but I guess um, we can understand some people feel like certain things aren't worth their time. Um, so it, it does add a level of credibility to those who feel that way about, um, you know, how they spend their time or do business with someone. Absolutely. You're in the UK, right? Yes. How is having that advanced degree looked upon? Like, is it, does people feel like that's, you know, it's not a big deal or is it just kind of, you know, is it something that is revered? How is it there? I'm trying to make a comparison to how we see it here. Here, let me just give you an example. I um, had someone else on a podcast and they were saying in their workplace, because they have an MBA, some of their colleagues would be like, oh, you think you're better than me? You, you think you're smarter than me? You know, so it's kind of like this competition um, in some ways. And I'm wondering if that kind of culture exists in the UK. It's a really interesting one. So with everything that's been going on in terms of COVID and lockdowns, the MBA that I did is a really global MBA. We have people from all over the world. So we had 17 different countries represented uh, in our cohort and there were big, big representation from all over the world. And it is really interesting to see how they're seen, but the impact that coronavirus or COVID-19 has had is that a lot of people who were looking to stay in the UK have ended up going back to their own countries. And MBAs have definitely helped some people to, to get into the workplace and get that foot in the door. For me, I toyed with the idea of going into management consultancy for a while because again the sort of safety blanket of oh maybe I need a couple of years of experience before I branch out on my own but thankfully I didn't get anywhere but for me it was because I had a midwife background and my background was a midwife and not as an engineer or anything else in business the MBA didn't help me to get to the interview stage people looked at me and said okay she's got an MBA but she's also been a midwife she's not got any practical management consultancy experience therefore we're not going to give her an interview wow you know that that's really quite odd because here in the state they are like clamoring for like new grads and you know unexperienced people because they want you to come in for them to train you on how to do do things exactly the way they want them done. So it's kind of one of those things where it's kind of a a really very intensive training program with our consultancies here. And they're looking for those who are basically a blank slate and they're willing to to invest in them. Interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. Different. Different. Mm -hmm. But I'm, I'm, you know, I'm glad and the fact that I didn't go into management consultancy and the universe pushed me in the direction of doing my own thing because it's definitely been the right decision for me. Yeah, you're making an impact on lives big time. I don't know if you would have had the same fulfillment in management consulting from <laughs> from um, from the experience of a lot of people. They say, it's, you know, it's a lot of traveling, of course, but it's basically the same playbook just a different client over and over again, where, Mm -hmm. you know, now with what you're doing with life and business coaching and strategy, I mean, you're changing lives literally. So 
Yeah, and that's where I get my kick. That's what I what I absolutely love to do. To see your clients aha moment, to see them really fly, just yeah, best feeling. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's in line with every other person who I've interviewed who are entrepreneurs. Even when times get rough for them, because as as we all know in entrepreneurship, there's ups and downs in in business. But even when times are rough, they just like yeah, I can't see myself going back because I love what I do and I get so much fulfillment out of the impact. I have that I can't imagine even when times get tough going back to something where I'm not as excited about my work every day yeah I can completely get on board with that okay that's it going from a midwife in the UK to now a life and business strategist with an MBA she talked about how getting her MBA was a safety blanket to help her hopefully land the job of her dreams When she wasn't able to even land an interview with many of these companies, she decided to go out on her own. It actually worked out in her favor. She now gets a kick out of changing lives as she embarks on her journey as an entrepreneur. The Unpolished MBA conversation continues, and you can be a part of it by going to unpolishedmba.com. Thank you for listening. I truly wanted to meet, which was Jim's boss. And I said, I, I, I saw him coming and, you know, I'm talking to him and I'm like, hey, hey, so how are you doing? Hey, I'm, he's like, you're Steve. You're Steve. He and already like, knew who you were. I was like, yeah, I was like, yeah, I am. Hey, I already know. I already know. I just, I already know all about you. I already know all about you. I appreciate everything that you've been doing. Love what you're doing. Love the talent that you're bringing on board. All this other stuff. And so, so that sponsorship piece is massive, and it just helps you. It helps you build confidence and helps you kind of understand that people truly do care about you. But mm-hmm. man, it is so. It is earned so much. Do you coach both inside of corporate and entrepreneurs? I do. Do you notice any kind of difference in the levels of confidence between the two? You know what? Uh, the entrepreneurs are a little bit, they deal with something different because it's the uncertainty of the future. It's like, oh my gosh, I don't know if this, this market or this, this, this idea, this product is actually going to excel unless they've been in business for a while. When I coach uh, corporate clients, there's a surety because of the organization. And if the organization is on, is on firm ground, then they feel that they're on firm ground. However, when it comes to tens of dollars a month on ad spend and they don't actually know why people are purchasing, why people aren't purchasing, why people are signing up, why people are signing up and not purchasing, why people are signing up and purchasing. It's a big, it's a lot of guessing that goes on. Mm -hmm. Um, So essentially the best that we have right now is doing progressive profiling where we ask people questions within an email and they click on it. The quick rates are 3% and open rates are 35% if you're doing like a really great job. So we have so much drop off that's happening with us. You get four data points that are relevant to the customer journey right up front when someone signs up when they're most interacting with the brand. So it puts you like, it's uneven, it's an uneven playing field. It's cheat codes really for getting started and being able to bucket people and understand how to sell to them. It sounds like you guys have really prioritized, like just understanding human nature. When I first signed, like, 
<laughs> lots of experience working with a lot of companies. That's the difference is it, this is a, this is a product that came out of uh, my partner and I's years, years of experience of working with companies and getting paid big advisory fees to help people go to market and then asking the same questions repeatedly. That's great that our cost is X to sign up someone. What do we really know about them? Okay, cool. What do we do with that? Hmm, okay. Mm-hmm. Like, the same questions kept coming up. And then we got in, we got into the weeds and we said, okay, in an ideal world, how would we apply the data? And how would we create an unfair advantage for companies that were that were collecting this data and using this data? And it turns out human nature is not really that different and people aren't like hesitant to give information if you ask for information that relates to a customer journey instead of personal information there's no need for someone to ask for a first name on a sign-up form when you just need them it's not needed that's so true that's just to be able to address them in an email nurture campaign when annoy them later company journey versus the customer journey Wow. and this is the biggest thing that i think it's funny because we'll finish this call and you're going to be browsing the internet and you're going to see all these pop-ups and you're going to be like, I never thought about it like that. But the best example I have for you, you go to so many websites and they say, save 10% on your first purchase, save $10 on your first purchase. Everything's about your first purchase. It's all about conversion on that first purchase. There is nothing in it for the customer other than a single transaction. And they keep saying first in every single pop-up that you see. We don't do that at all. We say save X percent on your on, for the first X amount of months with this many uses. We built in the idea of retention-based marketing from the first touch point because when you say first, you're not trying to build a relationship. You're trying to make a transaction happen. When you give someone the option of coming back when they have a coupon code that they can use multiple times, you've gotten you've gotten rid of bias that currently ex- previously existed about what a repeat purchase should look like and what time frame. So now all of a sudden, instead of chasing people via emails and discounts and everything else, you can remove all the discounts from your website, force everyone through one clear channel and understand without bias relative to data, why they're purchasing as frequently as they are. You are so smart. It's funny because I initially saw you on Twitter and it was something that was so insightful. I'm like, who is this guy? You just have a different way of seeing things and thinking about things. I just really have to say that the way that you describe <laughs> this, it's, it's not rocket science, but we don't think that way. Well, it's, it's your buying habits aren't actually related to discounts. Your buying habits, your buying yeah. habits are related, related to need and timing. Yeah. And a lot of people like have something it's like need, want, desire as being like the three levels of when someone will buy. I don't want need because they're willing to pay the lowest possible price. I don't want desire because it's usually out of reach and they have to justify the cost. But a want fits right in between as being something that is a little bit more expensive, but people have a concerted thought process of purchasing. So I get a better understanding of why they're purchasing. Um, But it all comes down to timing. And I think where a lot of brands get it wrong is they think they can force timing through scarcity and urgency. I want everyone to wake up massively and realize that the competition for consumer product goods these days is massive. There are so many different options that you have to go in where there isn't, uh, there isn't like a, there isn't scarcity and there is no urgency. And we need to get away from the idea of trying to create fake senses of scarcity and urgency and instead 
move into more value-based selling, which pertains to the actual customer journey instead of what the company wants, which is, again, that transaction to happen and that revenue to come in. It makes zero sense. When you start looking at things that exist and why we do them a certain way, if you ever Google something, and everyone can do this, this is the greatest exercise ever. Pull up a new fresh tab and you Google something like, what, why do people abandon carts or whatever, right? And then you open every single tab, uh, every single article that isn't an ad for the first three pages. And if you read them, you're gonna realize that everyone is talking about the same exact things. When everyone starts parroting each other within something, instead of asking why in the first place this is taking place, you realize that there's a systematic problem. Most marketers are trained to do it, you know, toward the metrics of how many leads we got in, how many folks we got into the funnel, not really tying it to revenue. So that's why sales and marketing should be, you know, joined at the hip and communicating in that way. Um, Does your product help create that bridge? Well, because we work mostly with e-com, everything is tied back to revenue. The long and short of the way that we see the process working specifically in our, in our space is that the ad team needs to work with the email team needs to work with the website team because it's one big business. And I think the biggest problem that a lot of companies have is they segment off and silo everything and they don't realize that everything is actually related to itself. I could have the best ads in the world, but if the website sucks, then no one's going to convert. I could have the best product in the world, but if the experience is bad and I can't drive traffic, it's not going to work. So everything has to work together in order for real success to happen. Quantitatively, like driving X amount of traffic to make X amount of conversion happen and try to repeat that and scale that isn't always smart because you're always gonna be mixing up audiences. You're gonna tap out of audiences. That TAM is real. Like you've gotta be smart about how you do it. We looked beyond that though because my belief is there's always markers and clean data that you can use to, to automate and streamline. You cannot automate if you have dirty data. You can automate if you have clean data. So the goal of every project that I've been involved in for the last, I don't know how many years, has been all about cleaning the data first, grabbing insights from that data, and then building models and systems around that clean data to see incremental change happen. Essentially, the goal of any business, SaaS, e-com, et cetera, is predictive revenue to figure out what's coming down the pipe so you can forecast. Our goal is eventually to be able to apply the data and we're pretty close to doing it right now where we can tell based on a signup and the answer is given what the lifetime value of that customer is over what time period. So we can start helping you forecast predictively out based on a signup. So if you're an e-commerce company, you now have predictable revenue and you can forecast out three, six months. And you mentioned about like marketers and following KPIs. I think that the systemic problem with marketing is that you get involved at a low level, you work your way up. As long as you meet certain KPIs, you're given a raise to the point where you're uh, director or CMO level. And in a lot of cases, you're so far detached from the data and it's driving the business and yeah. managing a bunch of different agencies who you're trusting to give you real information and have a good, a better approach than you would have internally or, or working with your people that we lose sight of the things that really matter. I posted a series of articles on Reddit uh, last year and they were how I would build a, a SaaS company today if I were going to build one. And it's like a six part series and it blew up, which was really nice. But a lot of it was I wouldn't. And that's the real answer that I give to everyone. It's the same answer that got me banned on Reddit from e-commerce for 
for posting about why I wouldn't build a, a e-commerce company right now. I built like a newsletter instead. Um, mm-hmm. Can you explain that? Because you, you always have uh, such interesting. Yeah. So e-commerce companies make on average 30% margin if they're doing really, really, really well. And if you try to launch an e-commerce mar- uh, company without uh, a market that's existing, you're going to spend a lot on the, the initial to get stuff out there and you're not going to make money for a while. So it didn't make any sense to do that. If someone was thinking about getting involved in that, the first thing that they should do is start a newsletter and then start collecting data on the group of people that were signing up for that so that you're within a lifestyle element so that you can start incorporating other products via affiliates to figure out, you know, is there enough of a desire within your initial market in order to sell into that so that you're actually building up uh, your your client list prior to doing anything. And it's a lot less money. I think right now, if you want to start an e-commerce company, I'm going to be real, it's 15,000 to get started and you have no guarantees. And that's before managing supply, shipping and everything else. It's just 15 to get started. And then you have to scale very, very slowly in order to make that happen. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying if you're going to do it, do it really, really smart. And it helps to have a built-in list to sell to rather than having a cold prospect people in the early days. The, the SaaS play was the same thing where everyone wants to jump into SaaS and sell software, but people don't understand. Customer success is the majority of the why software gets brought on the hardest part of changing software is actually implementation it's Mm -hmm. not oh this is great it's how do i get my workflows internally around this new software and this is the biggest misconception that i see with people in SaaS. they're all like oh our platform is great i was like yeah so is everything else out there and you have a lot of competition (laughs) (laughs) what's the cost of switching over and what's the cost from a resources perspective of losing uh, work time and making that transition from an existing service that's working good enough for the most part. In this last part, John shares some parting words of wisdom for those who get impatient and want to skip the line, or in other words, want to jump ahead in their journey. We all get impatient sometimes, and I think his words will hit home. Keep listening. The best piece of advice I have for everyone is that everyone wants to skip the line. And I wanted to skip the line so badly. I want to skip it so badly, and I tried so hard to skip it. And uh, it took me until I was working at a bunch of jobs, most of which fired me because I want to do things differently. I didn't believe that the things were being done in the most efficient way. I didn't believe I should be doing 12 hours of demos. I believe that I should be doing four hours of calculated demos. And going through those experiences, the one thing I learned is what you do nine to five for a company benefits the company. What you do outside of those hours to help make your life easier or better not only can benefit the company, but it can benefit your own like well-being and sanity. Well, that's it. So what did you think? Well, I think John is very understated and extremely interesting. You see, he has a plethora of side projects that are all on the same wavelength of exposing his sense of curiosity, analytical mind, creativity, and cleverness with a huge splash of just good old fashioned common sense. After this episode, I spent about another 45 minutes talking to him about new ways to think about business, ideas about the future and how companies can just be more human in their business dealings. 
especially when trying to acquire new customers or keep existing ones. It makes so much sense, but for some reason, it's counterintuitive to the standard practices these days. And I can only chop that up to something that I say all the time. People are complex. Most will resist change at all costs. But my hope is that this episode opened up some new ways of thinking for you, especially if you're launching a new business or new product. Thank you for listening to the Unpolished MBA podcast. To hear more episodes or to request to become a guest, please visit unpolishedmba.com.